This morning's scripture readings from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some magi from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, and all Jerusalem with him. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the Magi, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and you will find him. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Before we get into the sermon, uh, a special announcement or um, request, rather. You heard this mentioned already, Matt mentioned it, but I just want to mention it a second time, which is that this year we will be offering two Christmas services for the community, the first one's next Sunday, December 20th, at the normal time here at 10.30 a.m. And then the second one is uh, on Christmas Eve at 4 o'clock. And when I say that these these services are for the community, I mean that they are for the community. Uh, the, the secondary purpose, a subsidiary purpose, side benefit of these services is our church family getting to come together and, and celebrate Christ, uh, Christmas. The main purpose is for people in the city who would like to attend church somewhere at Christmas time but don't know where to go to have a place to go. But for that purpose to be fulfilled, it means that you have to invite them. And uh, you know, I don't really even need to mention this because you've all done a great job with this in the past. In fact, an increasingly great job. This has been something that our church has been getting better and better at over the years. So it's probably not necessary for me to say anything, but I, I just still feel like it's it's my job to remind you how important this is and, and to point out that any excuse you may have is very pathetic. And I don't even have to know what the excuse is. You know, it, it's, I don't have to hear it. I know it's pathetic compared to what's on the other side of the scale because on, on one side of the scale you have what, whatever you have. You know, I don't have time or... Uh, you know, maybe they'll say no, maybe they'll be offended, you know, or it makes me feel uncomfortable. And then on the other side of the scale, you have this person's relationship with God. So, in other words, there's no choice here. There's no decision to be made. There's really no option. You know, this isn't something, like, oh, maybe I, I sort of should do this. This is just something you have to do. And like I said, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir on this. The one last thing I'll say is just, it's not just about obligation. It's also about personal joy and personal fulfillment. You know, we've talked about this many times before. The joy of Christmas is not complete unless it is shared. And if you refuse to share it, what will happen is Christmas will come to mean less and less to you personally over time, which is your own fault. And this is, this is the way God made it. He designed it this way on purpose, that it dries up if you keep it to yourself. But if you share it with others, your joy can increase. So that's the first sermon. Now we'll, and we'll get to the, the second sermon, the real sermon. Uh, we're, we're now in the second week of the Advent series that we began last week. And what we said last week is that uh, the real Christmas, historically 
actually, biblically, it's quite a bit different than people have come to perceive it over the centuries. So we looked at one sense in which that's true last week when we talked about the darkness that's there in the Christmas story right alongside the light. People think of Christmas as being the story of light, but we saw this is actually a very dark, scary story. This morning, continuing in a similar vein, but looking at a different aspect, because not only is it the case that there's a lot of darkness in the Christmas story right alongside the light, it's also the case that in the Christmas story, there is a conflict, there is a war, there is a confrontational quality that's there right alongside the peace. And that's the, the first word that comes to mind when you think of Christmas. One of the first words is, is peace. That's what the shepherds say to the, or the angels rather say to the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And Christmas is a story about peace. There's no doubt about that. But, but along with the peace, there's this combativeness. There's this battle. There's this fight. And it's there right beneath the surface. But we often miss it. And so what I want to do this morning is hopefully draw our attention to it, to this fight and this combativeness that there in Christmas. And what we're going to do to, to do that is we're actually sticking with more or less the same incident we looked at last week. The passage that we're going to be using as our guide this morning, unpacking, is the passage that directly precedes the portion of Scripture we looked at last week. So last week we talked about this massacre of the innocents, Herod uh, ordering the, the death of all of these innocent children. This week we're going to be looking at Herod still, but looking at the lead-up to that, looking at the backstory. That's the passage you just heard read. And to break down this theme, we're going we're gonna to put it under three headings. So first is Herod's fear. Second is Jesus' claim. And then third and lastly is our dilemma. Those will be the three sections to this morning's sermon. Herod's fear, Jesus' claim, and then our dilemma. So first, Herod's fear. And as I said, we looked at what Herod did last week. He, he pronounced this edict that all of the boys under a certain age in Bethlehem should be put to death. But what I want us to see this week is why he did it. I want us to try to get inside his head a little bit and look at his motives and his mentality. Because what's happened with Herod is what happens with anybody who commits an atrocity, which is that he's become a caricature. You know, he's the bad guy, the villain in the Christmas story. We, 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 almost like a cartoon, you know, you think of him with these squinty eyes and a pointy beard and this really creepy voice. And, uh, you, you know, he's the guy you boo and hiss when he comes on stage during the Christmas pageant. If you're an actor playing Herod, your big line, your big dramatic moment in the pageant, it's the last line that you just heard John read in the scripture reading, it's supposed to send chills down your spine. It's when, when he says to the Magi, well, when you find him, come and tell me so that I can worship him too. You know, and then you cue this maniacal laugh and, you know, scary music and the whole bit. He's just this classic villain. And I, I'm not, I mean, there's some truth to that. You know, he, he kills a bunch of babies. That's about as bad as he gets. He is a bad guy. But, on the other hand, if we stick with just this cartoon Herod, we're in danger of missing one of the main points of the Christmas story. And the way we can get at it is, is, as I said, by trying to figure out why Herod did what he did and looking at his motives. The passage tells us what it says in verse 2 is that when he heard this news from the Magi, this rumor that a new king had been it says that he was, quote, deeply disturbed. It's not hard to figure out why that would be. Because he's the king. He's the current king. He's the one that has control at the moment. And so this suggestion that there's a new king in town, perhaps the rightful king, of course he's going to be disturbed 
by that. It, it's threatening his control, and so that's why he lashes out. His original plan is just to use the Magi's informants and find the one child and kill that one child. That doesn't work out. The Magi don't cooperate, and so then he resorts to this more drastic plan of killing all the children under that age to try to get the one child that he's after. But what gets missed is, and it's right in that same verse when it says, Herod was deeply disturbed. It might be the most overlooked phrase in the entire Christmas narrative. What gets missed is what, what it says is, when Herod heard the news, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod heard the news, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. He wasn't alone. Why? Because for the same reason Herod was disturbed. Anybody that had any power or any control or any position, anybody that had any property for that matter, this idea of a new regime, a new administration, a new order, well, that's a threat to the current order. And so if you've figured out how to maneuver within the status quo and how to establish yourself within the status quo, you don't want that status quo being upset by a new king. So what scripture says is that, that Herod isn't alone. He doesn't stand by himself. Rather, he's just a representative for, he's no different than, he's really no worse than the whole city of Jerusalem. And you say, well, he kind of is. He kind of is worse because he's the one that actually makes the kill order. You know, he's the one that, that tries to take Christ's life. So doesn't that set him apart? But not really. Because if you, if you fast forward 33 or so years, this decision to try to take Christ's life ends up looking like a really forward-thinking move. It looks a lot different in hindsight than it looks at the time. Because what's happening 33 years later? Everybody's trying to kill Jesus. Long after Herod's gone, once Herod is, is way out of the picture, still it's still the case that all Jerusalem is still disturbed by this same baby. They're still having a problem with this same guy. So, in some sense, Herod isn't the villain. He's a prophet. He just catches on before everybody catches on. He's out ahead of the curve. And what, what ends up happening is everyone with power has to conspire together at great expense of time and energy and money to finally put an end to this guy's bid for king. So Herod could have saved everybody a lot of trouble if he had gotten the job done the first time. He could have been a hero. See, when, when somebody does a bad thing, we always want to put them in a different category, totally different category, you know, to try to explain it. Well, they, they are evil. You know, they are a megalomaniac. They are crazy. They are this. They are that. Try to distance ourselves from them as much as possible. And what we're getting at here when it says that all Jerusalem was disturbed with Herod is that Herod is not this standalone figure. He's rather a representative of everybody else. Because these people that do these bad things, oftentimes what they're doing is just embodying and bringing to pass something that's present in a lot of other people. It's there in all of us. And that's what you see here with Herod and Jerusalem. It's not just Herod. It's all Jerusalem with him. That's the fear of Herod. And to sum all that up, the, the point is his fear was very well-founded because his fear was, look, if we don't do something about this kid now, He's going to cause a lot of problems for us later on. And that fear turns out to be spot on. So now let's move to the second section. That's Herod's fear. Now let's talk about Jesus' claim. And the question that I want us to ask in this second section is why? why? Why does everyone respond so violently 
to Jesus? Why does everyone want to kill him? Why does everyone end up killing him in the end? We already alluded to a partial answer to this just a a few minutes ago when we said, well, you know, anybody that has power or control is going to want to maintain that power or control. So if there's, you know, if you think about like a revolution, and that is what Jesus came to bring, he came to bring a revolution. Well, if you think about a a political revolution, the people on the top don't want the revolution because they want to maintain things the way they are. And so there's some truth to that, you know, that that people didn't want Jesus there because he was bringing this revolution. But if we stop there, I think that's a pretty superficial analysis because ultimately Jesus didn't get killed for political revolution. Reasons. Ultimately, the reason Jesus gets killed and the reason everybody is so threatened by him goes a lot deeper than that. And the thesis I want to advance in this second section, I think that if you, if you read the Gospels, you'll come to this conclusion for yourself, is that the reason Jesus gets killed, the reason he's so offensive, is because of the claim that he makes about his identity and about what he deserves, the, the claim he makes about who he is. Of course, that's how it starts. You know, that's, that's why Herod wants to kill him, too, is this claim that's made about his identity by other people. The wise men said, well, this is the rightful king. This is the rightful king of the Jews. And it's the claim of identity that starts to cause problems from the very beginning. But what happens is, is that Jesus, as he grows up, the claims he makes about himself are far stronger, far broader, far more offensive than any claims that are made about him when he's born by the Magi. You know, he, and it, they're the type of claims, they're not the type of claims that you would expect even a king to make or, or to switch to another category that Jesus is sometimes put in. They're not the type of claims that you would expect some sage or some religious teacher to make because he doesn't say, oh, I have the truth, I can show you the truth. What he says is, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He doesn't say, Well, I, I can show you the path to eternal life. I can show you how to escape death. I can show you how to get in contact with the divine. What he says is, I am the resurrection and the life. I have the power over death in myself. And you read the gospel, and it's just over and over again. His favorite subject is himself. He's just constantly talking about himself, all these absurd, egotistical claims about me, me, me. People don't like to talk about this. They don't like to focus on it. Well, they want to, you know, you want to make peace. And so you say, well, let's find the common ground. You know, so what about like the Sermon on the Mount? You know, these ethical teachings. Uh, Didn't Jesus talk about the golden rule? You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Let's focus on that. Didn't he say that? Well, yes, he did say that. But he also said a lot of other things, and he also said a lot of other things more often. And if you just focus on those ethical teachings to the exclusion of the rest, then you're not looking at the real Jesus. You're not confronting him as he really is. And the rest of it is pretty hard to swallow. This business about, if you know me, you know God. If you don't know me, you don't know God. And those who reject me are condemned already. It's pretty harsh, And along with these harsh claims are these equally harsh and equally repulsive demands about the behavior that he expects from his followers. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Obey me. Obey me. Anyone who is not wanting to take up his cross, deny himself and follow follow after me, is not fit to be my disciple. Or he says in, in one place, anyone who does not hate their father, And mother, in comparison to me, is not fit to be my disciple. In other words, 
your love for me, your commitment to me has to take priority over all other relationships. You should be quite willing to even die for me. See, it's not just a claim to be the king of the Jews. What we're getting at here is that his ultimate claim is to be king over every single human soul. He claims to be king over me, and he claims to be king over you. And he demands absolute allegiance to, absolute submission to, surrender to, absolute adoration of himself. That's his claim. And that's why he gets killed. Because what else can you do in the face of that kind of claim? If somebody comes to you and says, I own you, you're mine, well, you either submit or you fight. Those are really your only two choices. Herod fights. Jerusalem fights. And one of the most important truths in Scripture is that we would have fought too. You know, what, what, what people get messed up on is uh, they, they focus on this question of, well, historically, who was it that actually killed Jesus? You know, who bears the most responsibility? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jewish leaders? Was it this party? Was it that party? But what Scripture says is it, it's really inconsequential who happened to kill Jesus as a matter of history. Because the far deeper truth and more important truth is that we all would have killed Jesus if we had been there. We all would have been shooting, shouting, crucify him, crucify him with the crowds if we had been there. Peter, in the, in the first Christian sermon ever preached uh, on the day of Pentecost, he says to the crowd, this huge crowd, he says, he refers to this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you crucified. And most of the people he was talking to weren't even in Jerusalem when the crucifixion had taken place. The point isn't that you actually, on a human level, were involved in this. The point is that you would have been. You would have been involved in it because all of us are king over something. We're all king over our own lives. We all have our own little sphere, our own little serfdom that we control. And when somebody comes in and says, well, that's mine, I expect you to surrender to me, the natural response of the human heart is to fight. Paul says in the book of Romans, the natural mind is not indifference toward God. It says the natural mind is hatred toward God. The natural mind is enmity toward God because he's claiming to, to be in control of us. He's claiming our allegiance, and nobody wants that. Everybody wants to be captain of their own fate and master of their own soul. Everybody wants that. And so we all would have fought with Jerusalem. We all would have fought with Herod. Herod just sees it before everybody else. And this is what Christmas is about. He catches on before the rest of us that this is what Christmas means. It's an invasion. It's an occupation. It's a takeover. And it's there in the Christmas carols, even if you, if you listen to the words. You know, right now, people are shopping all over the city, all over the country, and they're, they're blithely you know, looking for Christmas presents while in the background being piped in on the speakers is joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. If you think about it, it's sort of ominous. You know, I mean, it's, it's this like happy tune, you know, rah, rah, joy to the world. But if you listen to the words, it, it's kind of like a, a propaganda song, you know, that you'd expect some evil tyrant to put out to try to brainwash you. Joy to the world, I'm coming in, I'm going to take over, and you should be happy about it. And a lot of people weren't. A lot of people weren't happy about it because they saw what was going on. They weren't stupid. And so they killed him, and we would have too. That's the second section of the sermon. Jesus' claim, and the point is, given his claim, what else can you do but fight? 
See, Herod, it doesn't just represent Jerusalem. He represents all of us. We are Herod in the story, and Herod is us. He's the protagonist, in a sense. We're, if anything, we should be rooting for him. You know, it's like how the, the CIA props up one bad guy to prevent another worse guy from coming in. Well, Herod's bad, but Jesus doesn't want to stop with Judea. Jesus wants to take over the whole world. That's his claim, and that's why we have no choice but to fight. So now moving to the third and final section of the sermon with the time we have left this morning. Lastly, our dilemma. That's Herod's fear. That's Jesus' claim. But lastly, our dilemma. And our dilemma is we now all have to decide how we're going to respond to him, whether we're going to fight like Herod did or whether we're going to surrender to him as king and as lord. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought you said we already did respond. You know, I thought, I thought that was your point, that uh, when he came, we all would have killed him. We all would have lashed out in violence. And that's true, but that's not the end of the story because he doesn't stay dead. You know, it's like uh, in the movies when you, when you kill the bad guy and then all of a sudden he's back, you know, and, and you thought you got rid of him, but he's still there. As Christians, we're, we're so conditioned to celebrate the resurrection of Christ and to see it as this moment of joy. But what I don't want you to miss, what I hope you can feel this morning, is the absolute dread, the absolute sickness in the pit of the stomach, the absolute fear that most people felt when the tomb was empty. Because we thought we got rid of him. We thought we got rid of him, and now he's still out there. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven, and what Scripture says, what he says, is that he's coming back. So now we're in this interim period between when he was here the first time and when he's coming back the second time. And the interim period is of crucial importance because in this interim period, what every person has to decide for themselves, and nobody can decide for you, is how you are going to respond when he gets back. How are you going to respond when you face him? And it's not just this, this hypothetical question about the future. It's, it's actually a very practical question about how you're going to live now because you can't, you can't change your mind once he gets here. You know, what you're going to do then is how you have to live now. And so if you decide that you're going to side with him, that you're going to subject yourself to him, then that means now serving him as Lord. That means now obeying him. That means now submitting yourself to him and surrendering yourself to him. On the other hand, if you're not, then it's rebellion against him. Then it's, oh, I'm going to call my own shots and do things my own way. And you say, well, why is this a hard decision? You know, why, what you, why you, you say it's a dilemma? What's a dilemma about it? I mean, the way you portrayed him in the second section, I mean, who, who would, like you said, how could we do anything but fight? Who would want to do anything but fight? What, what's the other side to this? You know, why, why would I want him when there's these other attractive options. For instance, in the first place, like you said, I could run my own life, which seems to be going fine. In the second place, even if I did need some guidance from somewhere, even if I did need a religious teacher, why don't I just go with a, a far kinder, gentler religious teacher? You know, Buddha, for instance. Buddha didn't make any of these absurd claims about his own identity, so why wouldn't I do that instead? I think that response... Uh, makes a lot of sense. I think given everything we've talked about so far, if you've been following up to this point, I think that's the proper response is no thank you. So what I want to do now with with a couple minutes we have left is just respond to that response by keying in on two ideas that I just presented. The first idea is this idea of Buddha, for instance. Buddha didn't make these sorts of exclusive claims, arrogant claims about himself. 
So let's talk about that for a second, because that is 100% correct. And it raises this really vexing historical problem. You know, a lot of people through history have made the same claims that Jesus made, claimed to be God, claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the Savior of the world. Not one of them, besides Jesus, got a major religion started. Moses didn't claim to be God. Muhammad didn't claim to be God. Abraham didn't claim to be God. Buddha certainly didn't claim to be God. So you've got basically this Venn diagram. We've got this set of people over here that claim to be God and claim to be the Messiah, and this set of people over here who started major religions, and Jesus is the only name in the overlap. He's the only one that did both. And the reason that people who claim to be God never started a major religion besides Jesus is because claims to be God are overwhelmingly repulsive to normal, rational people. You know, these, these messianic figures, what happens is they get a few crackpots, a few maladjusted individuals who follow them for the course of their lifetime. They, they coerce and they manipulate. And then as soon as they die, the movement dies with them. So how did Jesus get away with it? How did Jesus, making these same absurd claims that normally would lead to uh, obscurity, found Christianity the biggest religion on earth? That takes me to the second thing in that response, that hypothetical response that I put forward just a second ago that I want to key in on, zero in on, which is this idea, well, I'm, I'm going to find a, a kinder, gentler religious teacher rather than this, this guy, Jesus. And my reaction to that would be, well, you can try, but you're not going to succeed. Good luck. Good luck with that. See, it's op- opposite responses to the two parts. To the, the thing about Buddha not making these claims, that's absolutely true. But to this idea that you could find a kinder, gentler savior or religious teacher, that's absolutely false. And this is the paradox of Jesus. Because coupled with these extremely repulsive claims, right alongside that is this overwhelmingly attractive life and attractive character. This humility and gentleness and kindness and compassion and grace that's absolutely Unsurpassed, and it's the only way you can explain why he had the followers he did. You know, if you if you just think about him in terms of being like a character, a character in literature. If you read the Gospel of John from cover to cover, what you will see is that just as a character, Jesus is easily the most compelling, the most beautiful character that's ever been written about. Ask any English major about this, and if you are an English major, what you know is that most of the most compelling and beautiful characters in literature are based on him. They're just kind of a reinterpretation of Christ. So that's who he is in the Gospels. And the question is, was it true? Was he really like that in, in real life? And the answer is, it has to be true. It has to be true logically, that he was every bit as morally beautiful, morally radiant, every bit as personally compelling as the Gospels portray him to be. Otherwise, how would his movement have even gotten started? See, people are torn. They're torn because they want to reject these ridiculous claims. How could I possibly follow a guy that is this egotistical? And yet, on the other hand, how could I not? How could I not follow a guy that is this kind, that is this gentle, that is this tender? And it's not, you know, we're not talking about manipulation. We're not talking about charisma. We're talking about rock-solid moral beauty. And nowhere is that moral beauty more on display than in his death on the cross. See, we've been, we've been talking about this from our perspective, how uh, killing him, like Herod tried to do, is the only thing that makes sense. You know, what else could we do, this person that's trying to come 
and take over. We have to do that. But what happens is, is that once we actually go through with it, once we actually nail him to the cross and see him up there hanging on the cross, and once we hear him saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, then all of a sudden a switch happens. And this is what happened with the Roman centurion. He was the guy that, that actually nailed him there. And he gets him up there, and he sees the way he's dying, and he has this moment of, we made a big mistake. The line is in Scripture, surely this man was the Son of God. This is a guy that has no religious background at all, and he sees the way he dies. Surely this man was the Son of God. We were wrong. He wasn't some crazy tyrant. He was exactly who he claimed to be. We were wrong. And the way that that dawned on the the Roman centurion in that moment, that moment of conversion is just a snapshot of the, the way that it has dawned on the entire world over the last 2,000 years, this progressive realization globally of we were wrong. We killed them, and we were wrong. You know, it took about 1,900 years or so for it to sweep across the Western world. Then in the last 100 years, it's now sweeping across the, the global south and the east. Africa from 1,900 to 2,000 as a continent, Africa goes from 10% Christian to 50% Christian. Korea, in the same period, 1900 to 2000, goes from about 1% Christian to 50% Christian. And now, in the 21st century, the same thing is happening in China. China will soon have more Christians than any other country on earth. What's happening is people are waking up. They're realizing we were wrong. And what's doing it for them is the exact same thing that did it for the Roman centurion. It's seeing him on the cross. It's seeing the way that he died. Because, yes, he, he claims kingship and authority. And yes, he demands surrender. But what he does first is he offers himself up for surrender. He lays down his own life for us. You know, that's what he says to Peter leading up to the cross. He says, don't you know that I can call 10,000 angels right now and it would all be over? He could have, but he didn't. He willingly lays down his life for us. And in so doing, and this is a sermon for another time now, and you've heard me talk about this before, but I'll just mention it. In so doing, in laying down his life for us. He sets us free from the chains of sin and death. He frees us to actually now be able to worship him, be able to serve him for the first time. He washes us clean. See, we killed him because we didn't think he was fit to be our king, and he died for us so that we could be fit to be his subjects. And not just his subjects. It's actually more than that. Paul talks about this in Romans. What he says is, you know, it's, it, when Jesus dies for us, what that makes possible is a relationship with God on a totally different plane, totally different dimension. So what Paul says is, he says, you're no longer slaves, but sons. And because of Jesus now, your spirit can cry out to God for the first time, Abba, Father. Jesus doesn't want to just be your king. He also wants to be your brother. God isn't just your judge. He also wants to be your father. And Jesus makes that possible. Christmas makes that possible. But there's still the tension. There's still the fight. Anybody that's ever looked at the real Jesus, not some mythical made-up Jesus, but the real Jesus of the Gospels has felt this overwhelming tension. Because on the, on the one hand, I want to run my life. I want to stay in control of my life. I hate this idea of, of him being the way, the truth, and the life. But on the other hand, look at what he did for me. Look at how he died 
for me? How can I resist? That's a question that Christmas presents us with every year. How are you going to respond? Are you going to fight like Herod did? Or are you going to throw up your hands and bow your head and surrender? Let's pray. Father, our first instinct is to fight. You know that. You know that we think we've got it covered. You know that we think this is all um, some manipulative attempt to ruin our lives in some way. And that we want to maintain control. That we think we're the ones that should run our lives. You know that about us. You know that we've been that way since the garden. You know that sin makes us like that. God, it's only through your power that that spell, so to speak, can be broken. It's only through Christmas. It's only through Easter. It's only through seeing the sacrifice that you were willing to make for us, the way that you love us at the same time that you demand allegiance from us, that we're going to be able to wake up. I know that me talking about it isn't going to be enough, so I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would drive these truths into our hearts, whether it's this morning, whether it's sometime this week, whether it's sometime in the year ahead. We ask that you would make it real to us, that you would, we may intellectually understand it now, but that there would be this moment of coming to feel it and coming to see that it's true. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.